Hello, church family. Today we are in the study, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're today in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. And uh, before we go into this, it's just, uh, again, some background information but uh, about this portion. But even I'm going to step back even more than that in terms of looking at the totality of Scripture. Because when we look at the Bible, the Bible is not, um, it's, it does have a, a purpose to it. I think oftentimes when we're preaching through books in the Bible, we'll say, here's the theme of the Bible, and then we're to kind of individually uh, separate it but in that way. But we know under just studying through Scripture and like the totality of Scripture, what we would call biblical theology, that there is a grand picture, a grand theme, an overarching uh, idea that, that encapsulates everything in, the, in, in all of Scripture. And there have been debates on what it is, and some people can argue one or the other. And some, and, and they, I think each of these views generally have a strong argument. But I hold to the view that the main theme of the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. Uh, and that sounds strange, but it, there's a lot of implication, I think, throughout Scripture. It talks about how uh, it uses these kingdom languages, about how, like, even with Israel in the Old Testament, there's like a kingdom, and the king's going to reign. And then and we look at Revelation, it talks about uh, Christ reigning as king. So from, you know, Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible, this idea of being in God's kingdom is the theme, I think, of the entire Scriptures. But another way to say that, though, I do think that the Bible speaks about is, is just salvation. What do you call entering into the kingdom or going to heaven? or The whole concept, I think, is still the same when we say that the Bible is about a story of salvation. That Jesus has entered into time, fully God and fully man, and living the life that we should have lived and dying on the cross that we deserve, raising uh, uh, from the dead three days later and ascending up to heaven. This is the gospel message that's central to Christianity. Now, we as Christians, we understand that. We know that's true, and we will say amen and amen to it. But we can see, as we just look in our culture, that the gospel is being muddled and is becoming more and more shallow and oftentimes even uh, vague. And the reality is that biblical Christianity is not helpful when the Bible is vague. A vague gospel isn't really a real gospel. Um, the fact that Jesus came into the world, this should be a reality for our, us Christians. The fact that Jesus lived a perfect life is a reality for us as Christians. The fact that Jesus risen from the dead is a reality for us Christians. And when we think about not just the, uh, who Jesus is and who God is and, and all, every doctrine that's revealed in Scripture, these things matter. Um, and I think we think sometimes that uh, there should be grace in some of the differences. And I do understand that, like, you know, secondary issues and things like that. But that level of grace should not be uh, an excuse to compromise, when we, especially when we're engaging the world. The world loves obscurity. The, lo the world loves to deconstruct. The world loves to try to find ways to make uh, not one claim definitive, but, you know, all, all religions are the same. In fact, I'll argue that why Christianity is so offensive is because of how clear it is. Clarity causes conflict. Conflict. Clarity causes conflict. Compromises causes comfort. Compromises causes comfort, whereas clarity causes conflict. 
in the, in the early church, that's what it was, was, it was like. They were so clear about who Jesus Christ was that it offended those around them. And we're going to see that here in chapter 4. Again, a little now and now we're going back to the book of Acts and the context here. Chapter 4 continues on with everything that happened in chapter 3. Follows the events almost uh, sequentially. And, uh, you know, John and Peter are, are uh, faithfully, uh, in chapter 3, they're just going out to the temple and they saw a lame beggar. Uh, that you know was you know he was, he was basically unable to walk fr from birth, and John and Peter they couldn't offer anything except for a means for them to uh, a means for this individual this lame man to walk, and he said and they said in chapter three verse six, but Peter said I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ Nazarene walk, and that's a weird thing that you can offer someone right like, I'm going to offer you your legs that. Are, uh, uh, that you don't have, which is something obvious far more valuable than gold and silver. But more than that, this is supposed to be a picture of, a graphic picture of the gospel, how we were dead in our sins and how the only means for us to be saved and rescued and have new life and to be able to walk with God is through Jesus Christ. And when that happened, uh, chapter 3, verse 11 to uh, 26, or pretty much the rest of the chapter, all of these people confronted Peter and John. They wanted to know what this meant. Um, and Peter was very straightforward with them. These were the Jewish audience. He told them directly that you guys uh, are rejecting the Savior, the one that actually saved, that rescued this lame man. And he was, he was trying to explain to them that Jesus is this promised Messiah, that he's fulfillment of Scripture, and that the people there that are listening need to repent and turn to Jesus. Now, there were many people that heard this and they started believing. But when we get to chapter 4, as with the story continues, we see that uh, that doesn't come without any consequences. Again, clarity causes conflict, whereas compromise causes comfort. And Peter and John chose clarity, uh, which leads to uh, conflict, rather than compromise, which leads to comfort. So we see here, Chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Um, the Sadducees were these religious people. They're generally more on the political side. And one of the unique doctrines that they reject, uh, or hold or reject, how you look at it, is that they deny the resurrection. And it says here that they came up to them. And this is a word that's usually used um, to mean like they come suddenly and, and it has a almost like a hostile intent. Um, they see this person get, or they, they're hearing, if you just kind of imagine the scene, they're in the temple, there's people cheering in awe and wondering why this lame man is walking, and then people are saying, hey, these, these two guys came here and they healed that lame guy, and they're like, that cannot be. Uh, the person that they're all familiar with are suddenly radically different to the point where he's unfamiliar with them. And what's the most unfamiliar thing is that he's walking and he's praising God. And the people there, seeing all this, points, uh, uh, you know, lets the Sadducees and all the people in the temple know, and point to John and, and Peter, saying, these are the ones, uh, these two are the ones who helped that guy. And they said this in the name of Jesus. And they, you know, and again, at this point in the book of Acts, it's not that far off from the crucifixion. It's maybe like a month or two after the fact. So it's still fresh in their mind who Jesus of Nazareth is. And uh, the message of the gospel changed the people there. And then there was like, in a lot of ways, the Jews felt like their authority is being 
uh, usurped because Jesus has come and said that the temple is going to be destroyed, and all the Pharisees and the, all the Jewish leaders were were liars and were and you know children of the devil, and they're saying like that. No, the those people, those followers of that guy, has now healed this person, and uh, and now they're disturbed, so they brought them in. Verse two, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they lay hands on him them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening that's significant here is basically it was because it was late at night um, they, it was too late for a trial they wanted to get the sanhedrin which is a, a group of uh, jewish leaders um, of different sects together to try to um, confront the apostles and um, again the uh, it seems uh, in verse two that they were greatly disturbed when they were teaching the implication is that they were upset for one of the reasons that Peter, they, they didn't view Peter and John as someone's credible. In fact, if you jump down to 13, which we're not really going to look too much in today, but it says here, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were an uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So there's a sense in which they felt like these people should not have any credibility to tell us what how to run our religion because they don't have the, the, the credentials for it. And we understand in our day and age, sometimes people think that they can argue against Christianity simply because they have all of these, these degrees, right? I, I spent all these years studying the sciences, and therefore the Bible is not true. Or I've spent all this time studying ethics, and therefore the Bible is not true. And, and we see in the, in the modern day, when we look at the news report, would say the experts will say these things, or experts will say those things. And oftentimes they're going to try to be antithetical to what the Bible teaches. But you have to understand and not be worried by, by degrees. Now, don't worry by those that hold degrees, but rather uh, worry about the Lord that can destroy those by throwing people in a place of fire, which is of infinite higher degrees. Um, and I think this is what's going on here, that the, these Sadducees are upset because uh, they have now, not only did Jesus try to uh, expose them, but now these apostles, his followers, are doing the same thing. And they threw him in jail. Uh, but verse 4, there's still a reaction here. Many of those who have heard the message believe, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So the people heard, and this news of this layman, I would imagine the layman and those that were there, they're now telling people about Jesus of Nazareth, and they said that 5,000 people were saved. And just a tidbit here, this will be the last time in the book of Acts where they start naming how many people were saved. This doesn't mean that this is the last people that get saved. It just means that I think somewhere down the line, Luke decides to stop recording how many people got saved. Verse 5, On the next day the rulers and elders, scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who, who were on high, on high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? So they wanted to know, even though they've already probably know. But Peter here is basically the Jews are doing this because they want a clarification. It's not that they don't understand; they just want to hear from uh, from the apostles that they are actually followers of Jesus, which in their minds, the Jewish mind, is is a form of heresy. So it's like a, like a, what you would call like a heresy trial kind of thing, kind of like what Martin Luther went through with the Roman Catholic Church. This is kind of like that. Of course, they. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made healed, uh, made, made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, 
this man stands here before you in good health. So Peter is very, very bold now. He is very clear about what it, uh, who Jesus is, how they got, how that this man got better, and essentially what he's trying to say is that the Christian message, the gospel they're preaching, changes lives. Um, and this threat, uh, this threatens the Sadducees because essentially saying that they don't need them anymore. They don't need the priests anymore because Jesus is the great high priest, and the the reason why he was killed was because of the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, but he was raised from the dead. And again, that offends the Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection, even though the fact that they were just witnessing to all these supernatural events going on. And Peter here uses an Old Testament reference. This is from Psalm 118, which said, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. So he's speaking about the messianic psalm here, how Jesus was going to be rejected, and through him, then the foundation or the really the cornerstones of every, you know, cornerstones like the thing where everything is built in relative to. So the the church and the apostles, all the followers are built in relative to who Jesus is. This is saying that the cornerstone of of their faith is the one that the Jews have rejected. So the Jews understand this verse, but they don't understand again how it applies to them. This is kind of what. It, I talked about that in the last episode where the Jews, you know, Peter was using these Old Testament references to point to Jesus and they didn't understand. Uh, and he's saying, like, this is the one they rejected. And these are the, Jesus is the one that they rejected. And verse 12 is something very fa- uh, passionate and is also something that is offensive, but also very gracious at the same time. Verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else and in no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this is a very... It's, it's offensive because it's a very exclusive term. He's saying that no longer are the high priests the reason why they get saved. No longer are the rituals. No longer are these, Jew, uh, these Jews, Jewish traditions. The only person that can save them is Jesus Christ. The one that they've rejected, the, uh, the one who's the, the cornerstone of their faith. That's the, that's the only one that, uh, that, can come, that can bring them to saving faith. Now this is, again, very interesting and also compassion too because here... Peter is trying to share the gospel with them. He, he's trying to win them to Christ. And even the last messages in chapter 3, he was trying to tell them, like, you need to go to Jesus, you need to go to Jesus, you need to go to Jesus. Peter wasn't trying his best to try to win them politically. He wasn't trying to even wrestle with them in any type of social sense. He just tried to point them to the reality that the only way for them to be saved is just through Jesus Christ. And it's, again, a very loving thing for him to do. In our day and age, we tend to see those that are against us as deserving of hell. We think those that are like you know, politically a certain way, or or people that are certain, um, you know, non-Christians, they deserve hell, and we almost want them to not hear the gospel or plead with them the gospel so they could feel the wrath of God. That's not what Peter and John are doing here. They want these Jewish people to be saved. They understand that um, you know Jews were ethnically part of the line of Abraham. So in a sense, they are uh, spiritual siblings in some ways, but they're not because they rejected Jesus. And Peter and John here, I think they they really do want to see their people get saved. They really see, want to see their countrymen come to saving faith. There has to be a love in their life that's bold enough to go and tell them that they're wrong and that they've rejected Jesus and they're going to die and perish without Jesus. But there's also a, an aspect of compassion when they're offering them the free gift of salvation. They're pleading with those that are needing to be saved. And I think Peter has understood that. He's compassionate, just like how Jesus is, is compassionate. 
Because remember, Jesus was broken over the fact that the Jews rejected Christ. And he wishes to be like a mother hand gathering his chicks together. And I think Peter is now mature enough to say, like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I don't want you people to die. I don't want you guys to perish. I want you guys to know that there is no salvation in no one else. And there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So he's even speaking in his own context that he needs Jesus as well, just as much as they need Jesus. And again, this is something that we need to remember too, especially when our culture seems to be hating Christianity more and more. We can't see them as, okay, they're the enemy and we want them to, we want God to come and destroy them, send a you know, fire to destroy and just purge away all those that hate Christianity. We want to plead with them. We want to pray for them. And we hope that they all come to saving faith. Um, and if the Lord uh, wills us that we get destroyed for faith, um, we, it should not be like, okay, well, you're going to get what you deserve. Um, because even those that hate us, they ultimately, they hate us because they hate God. But that doesn't mean we need, we, we, got, we, to, we can't be like, you know, vengeance doesn't belong to us. And we also need to understand that we didn't deserve God's mercy as well. Uh, we can't judge other people that we think are only deserving God's wrath, that only we deserve mercy. No, we all need mercy. Only some people will receive that grace and mercy. But that message of, of, of the gospel needs to preach boldly um, to everyone. And we need to be like Peter in that way. We want to be bold, filled with the Spirit to confront the false leaders, and have clarity in, in, in the gospel, and clarity in who it is that we need to go to for salvation. Now this clarity comes with the consequences. And like I said earlier, clarity causes conflict. And we will see that throughout the rest of the book. Throughout the rest of the book, as the apostles were, uh, or, 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 or had to have conviction and, and um, clarity in Christ, it invites conflict in their lives that is going to help the, the, the church be built and the gospel be made known through the world, the world known and even to our day today. So I hope that this is helpful and I hope that as you think about this chapter that you're thinking about people that you can share the gospel with, that in your gospel message that you are clear and that might mean that people might not like you for it, but if you're clear um, and, you're, and you're caring and you're compassionate, I trust the Lord will use you in a very unique way to draw people to him because everyone needs the mercy of God and we have the message that uh, they need to hear to receive that mercy. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a good day.